Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Maria Gambetta from the University of Lausanne on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD in 2010 from the EMBL in Heidelberg. After that, you moved on to the postdoc at the Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry in Martinsried and at the EMBL in Heidelberg. After that, in 2018, you moved to the Center for Integrative Genomics at the University of Lausanne as a tenure-track assistant professor, and you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? So my mother was uh, an interpreter for the United Nations and my father was a, was a civil engineer <clears throat> and uh, it, working in South America. And so I, I grew up in New York in a very multicultural environment. I was first in the United Nations school And uh, working in in a multicultural environment was something that was that is since then very appealing to me. So I very much enjoy working in in an endeavor that transcends borders. That's one aspect of it. Uh, the other aspect is that uh, I I have always had loved to think creatively about things, and I've always hated to memorize. Things and so studying science was a way to, to to think about problems in a creative way, and in particular, I, I was always attracted to molecular biology, which is more abstract than studying macroscopic things, right? Such as you know plants or ecosystems, and uh, and finally, there's another aspect about working and being a scientist that really fits my personality, which is that. There's something nonconformist about being a scientist um, in the sense that you're, you're studying things that are not hum made by humans, right? They, are, uh, they, are, they don't obey the rules of human society or human nature. And so studying something that, that, that goes beyond that was always attractive to me. Yeah, let's talk about your science. That centers around the molecular basis of gene regulation, specificity in Drosophila using genetics, genomics, biochemistry, and also <laughs> life imaging tools, <laughs> which yeah. you just described as not so appealing to you. Let's see how, how, how this fits into that. Um, so let's start in the year 2009. Uh, there you were mm -hmm. first author on a science paper where you investigated the essential role of the glycosyl transferase SXC OGT in polycomb repression. Um, can you talk about this story for Right. So I did my PhD in, in Jörg Müller's lab and uh, I, got a, I got a cool project, which was to characterize um, a polycomb mutant. So, you know, polycomb um, proteins, uh, there, there are about 20 of them in Drosophila and mutation of any one of them leads to loss of repression of a common set of target genes. And uh, and there was one of these mutants. It was called SXC for super sex combs, 
in Drosophila, you know, many polycomutants have 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 the name sex combs in them, right? Like extra sex combs, super sex combs, posterior sex combs, blah, blah, blah. This is due to the fact that these mutants all have homeotic transformations because they misexpress Hox genes. And one of these homeotic transformations is the appearance of sex combs, which are you know, dark hairs that are normally only present on the first pair of legs in males. Actually, all pairs of legs get them, right? Because the Hox gene that is responsible for forming these sex combs is inappropriately expressed in all legs instead of only in the first pair. Anyway, that was a parenthesis. So, so right, the, the super sex combs mutation, no one knew which gene had been mutated and was responsible for that phenotype. And so I embarked on this project to try to figure out which gene had been mutated. And after one and a half years, I finally found mutations in the Oglicknec transferase gene. This is a conserved glycosyl transferase that's present from flies to humans. And it, it was the only known glycosyl transferase that's actually present in the nucleus and in the cytosol of cells, right? Whereas most glycosyl transferases are in the in the secretory pathway, right? In the endoplasmic reticulum and in the Golgi because they glycosylate proteins that will then be secreted or exposed at the plasma membrane at the cell surface. So anyway, so um, so OGT, what it does is that it glycosyl it adds single glucnec, which is N-acetylglucosamin residues onto serins or threonines of a plethora of proteins. Okay, and so there had been hundreds of proteins that had been described to be glucnac modified. And yet, in Rosophila, if you mutate OGT, you get a remarkably specific polycone phenotype, okay, with misexpression of Hox genes and everything. And so... Um, this paper reported this discovery, and we had also profiled Glucknack for the first time on chromatin by ChipSeq at that time, right? And we had seen that Glucknack peaks are present at sites where polycomb proteins bind. So in Drosophila, polycomb proteins bind at elements called polycomb response elements, or PREs, and that's where we saw these peaks appearing. And finally, another important piece of data in that paper was that I found that one specific other polycomb protein that was called polyhomeotic, it was specifically glucnac modified. So of all of the polycomb proteins that I tested, and I tested about 10 of them because we had a large collection of antibodies, I found that only poly polyhomeotic was glucnac modified by OGT. Mm -hmm. so that was... That was that. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you then were part of a follow-up work uh, where you reported the crystal structure of the core of the Drosophila PCG protein complex, a faux repressive complex. Um, mm -hmm. So <laughs> uh, could you introduce us to this complex? And I mean, it's always nice to have a crystal structure, but I'm always a little bit intrigued by what exactly does it Yeah, what kind of level of information does it bring uh, when you um, have the crystal structure? So what, what did it do for you? Yeah. Right. So I must say, so I was, uh, was co-first author on that study. Really the, the first 
position, first author. It was uh, Claudio Alfieri, who was a PhD student in Christoph Müller's lab, uh, a structural biology lab at EMBL. And so uh, Claudio had crystallized the, the interaction interface between O, pleohomeotic. It is the it, it was the, the first known uh, polycomb protein with a DNA binding domain that can recognize a specific sequence that is enriched in these PRE elements that I mentioned before, which in Drosophila correspond to the sites where polycomb is targeted mainly. And uh, so he had crystallized the interaction interface between uh, a fragment and foe. And, uh, and a fragment in its interaction partner called SFMBT, which is another polycomb protein. And so this crystal structure gave us atomic resolution of the, inter the, the interaction interface between these proteins. And this allowed Claudio to design point mutations that killed the interaction between FO and, SF and SFMBT. My contribution to that study was to then describe the biological consequences of these point mutations. So what happens in flies and basically, well, as you would predict, point mutating these residues strongly decreased the interaction between FO and SFMBT. This led to impaired targeting of SFMBT to chromatin, and this resulted in derepression of, of Hox genes. And so this was you know the the message of this study was that uh, basically the interact the direct interaction between fo this DNA targeting polycomb protein and SFMBT, which is uh, which is uh, a partner protein that can interact with with members of, of PRC one, for example, another polycomb repressive complex. That uh, that that this was important for polycomb function. Yeah. So. This was work that is may maybe not so related to your current work. <laughs> so you then uh, switched to the lab or moved to the lab of Eileen for, for long. And there you switched uh -huh. to investig investigating CTCF function in developmental progression. progression. And this mm -hmm. is maybe more the work you're f focusing on right now. Um, so maybe you can uh, yeah, give us a little bit of insight into the, the first work in, in, in this area that you did in Eileen for Long's lab. Right. So, so my main project in Eileen's lab was was actually not related to CTCF. CTCF was a side project oh, that I started <laughs> on the side. Yeah, that, that's the one that was published first. But, but let's say the 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 heart of my work uh, in Eileen's lab was to use so to investigate whether you know three D contacts between enhancers and promoters are dynamic, okay? Over, over time, for example, over embryonic progression and across cell types. Uh, because if that were the case, it would suggest that, um, that modulating the physical proximity between enhancers and, and promoters could be a strategic way to regulate gene expression, right? So, uh, so, so sorry, so, to, sorry yeah. to interrupt in... In a former episode, like just a couple of episodes ago, we talked about like the distance. So the uh -huh. the distance on the primary sequence of the DNA, um, what kind of um, 
impact this has on like enhancer promoter interactions. But here you, mm -hmm. it was like more a timely thing, right? So not not like the, the yeah. distance, but more in the in the third dimension then. Yeah, so it was uh, it, we were we were basically comparing different cell types, neurons and muscle, and uh, different time points in embryogenesis, uh, and looking. So we we did this uh, using two approaches. One is uh, chromosome confirmation capture, and we were using Capture C technology that was you know using a protocol that was generously shared with us by by Doug Higgs lab. Um, and, um, so we had purified from Drosophila embryos, you know, the Eileen's lab, you know, one of, one of the beautiful, um, experimental systems that they have in, in her lab that they established in her lab is, uh, you can cultivate Drosophila embryos at a huge scale such that you can collect large amounts of precisely staged embryos and, Then fax purify, so using fluorescence activated cell sorting, different cell types. Okay. And so we had done muscles and neurons, and uh, we had done this from different time points in embryogenesis. And we had done capture C, so looking at 3D contacts established by viewpoints. In total, we had 600 viewpoints. And these viewpoints, well, it was quite a large scale. And they were uh, designed in promoters of genes that were either specifically expressed in muscle or in neurons, right? So tissue-specific genes. So it was pre-informed, right? So you you had your your um, yeah, enhancers of interest, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so we designed the viewpoints in promoters and in enhancers, exactly. So enhancers that we knew were specifically active in muscle or in neurons, right? And then so how did you did you determine which enhancers were active? Was it by transcribing uh -huh. a gene no, to a different levels? Question. Because a promoter so, activation so, is easy to, to, to measure, right? But uh, how do you measure enhancer activity? Right, right, right. So Alex Stark's lab created a, a wonderful resource um, that he published in Nature. Uh, Evgeny Kvon was the first author. They made thousands of drosophila lines in which they cloned um, candidate regions, so in the, in the genome, upstream of a reporter gene, and then did thousands of RNA in situ hybridizations in order to find which expression patterns these tested genomic fragments could drive expression in. And so you can go online onto their website and simply, you know, they, they, they've done a fantastic job at uh, uh, annotating these expression patterns, right? So you can say, okay, tell me all of the fragments that are expressed in muscle at this embryogenesis time point, you know? And so... <laughs> We were just eyeballing these this resource, and and, and that's how we chose many many of these uh, candidate enhancers. Um, there was also another resource published uh, by by a former colleague in Eileen's lab, James Reddington, and and David Garfield. They had done DNA uh, generated DNA seq data sets in these exsorted muscles and neurons at different time points in embryogenesis. So we also knew which accessible chromatin peaks were specifically accessible in either muscle or neurons at different time points. So we used all of these resources to design uh, capture probes 
you know, as viewpoints. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And so what we found, this paper, the, this manuscript is on bioarchive. Um, we found that actually there are quite some examples of dynamic, let's say looping, I'm, I'm using quotation marks, yeah, uh, events happening between tissue-specific viewpoints, you know, um, that, that we see looping events only in the cells in which these elements are active at that specific time in embryogenesis. And so we, we see both kinds of contexts, some that are constitutive, right? They're always there, no matter which cell type you look at, no matter which time points, but they're also a substantial fraction that are dynamic, suggesting indeed that, you know, context, uh, the frequency of context can be, can be modulated as a means to to potentially enable, you know, tissue-specific uh, gene activation. So the loop itself is not, like, important, but it's just a contact, right? So the, the loop just is because uh, the DNA is between the promoter and the enhancer. So the loop itself does not have a, a function, but it's the contact, right? So, I mean, for, for yeah. RNA, for RDNA, you know that you have, like, this um, round of transcription that is going on in the loop so that when the polymerase finishes, it can start again. But the loop in those enhancer-promoter interactions does not have a function per se, right? It's just that there mm. is the contact and the DNA is in between, and this is why you see a loop. Yeah, so so these these loops occur occur typically between accessible chromatin peaks, right? Um, and so there are probably contacts between promoters and 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 you know regulatory elements, sites bound by transcription factors. Um, you know, in a lot of work that that because this work was done with my former colleague Tim Pollux, who really did then most of the work after I left uh, mm -hmm. the lab to start my own lab, he, he really pushed this much further. He then tested, for example, some of, some of these regions, these distant regions that a promoter contacted dynamically. He tested whether they are enhancers, and indeed they are, and they're enhancers you know, that were active at the time that you would expect or that you would predict based on when they were establishing this contact. Um, and so... You know, I think I think that many of these dynamic contacts represent enhancer promoter interactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we go on on the timeline and and maybe moving away yeah. from CTCF, coming back to CTCF later, but there is was also a paper um, where you talk about CP one hundred ninety. So was this connected mm -hmm. to this study, or was this a follow up study on on the work you have been doing? Yeah. So so okay. So in Eileen's lab, you know, I I I was fortunate to learn genomics right which was a, a set of skills that I, I acquired at that time in my career um, and thereafter to start my own lab I, I decided to work so after working on gene silencing right with Jörg and gene activation with Eileen I, I wanted to study gene insulation which is um, which is the process by which um, so you, you prevent promiscuous contacts between pr promiscuous communication between a promoter and a regulatory element, right? So insulators are DNA elements that when you clone, when, when they're present in between a gene promoter and an enhancer, they're somehow magically able to prevent the communication between these elements, right? 
And um, so it's like a bouncer so in a discotheque. It's like a what? A bouncer in a discotheque? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. The the bouncer standing between you and the entrance of the discotheque. Exactly. So um, right. So so okay. When I started, there was it was unknown. So CTCF is the conserved insulator protein in flies and mammals. And Elfege Nora in, in Benoit Bruno's lab had, had recently published that CTCF in mammalian cells is required to form a large fraction of, of the boundary of TAD boundaries, right? So let me briefly say what, what TADs are. Um, TADs are topologically associating domains, right? So when when you when you look at how chromosomes are folded in three dimensions, you see that chromosomes consist of a succession of of domains, okay, which which you can think of as probabilistic three D volumes that DNA with lo, uh, that DNA within that domain tends to preferentially explore over time, and and there are boundaries between these domains, and these dom these boundaries are often uh, occupied by CTCF in mammals, and if you deplete CTCF you 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 disrupt these boundaries. But in Drosophila, no one had really looked yet at what CTCF is doing. The Drosophila genome had been proposed to, to fold through completely other mechanisms than in mammals. For example, it had been hypothesized that there are no real structural proteins in Drosophila, that everything is just explained by, by transcription and transcription-related processes. And so when I started my lab, um, and, and actually I started making the CTCF mutants as a side project in Eileen's lab, and uh, and so with together with Eileen we published you know the phenotype of these mutants, which is that surprisingly you remove seed salt, whereas CTCF in mammalian cells it's critical for a cell to survive. In flies, if you deplete CTCF, the flies make it to pupae, right? They're basically formed adults, but they just cannot hatch from the pupil case. And uh, so that was unexpected because uh, previously it had been you know, assumed that CTCF would at least be required for embryogenesis, which which was not the case. So then in, in, in my lab, when I started my lab, uh, we teamed up with uh, Ares Lieberman Aiden, and I had the, the fantastic opportunity to go to his lab and, and learn I see, because he had developed a low input protocol, which was crucial to be able, yeah, to to be able to do I see on dissected tissues from flies, right, as opposed to whole embryos or tissue culture cells, which is what had been done until then. And so we did. We we looked. So we decided to look in the brain of the CTCF mutants because we saw that expression of CTCF in fly brains, that, that the fly brain is the most important organ that requires CTCF, uh, meaning that you can make a fly that lacks CTCF everywhere in its body except for the brain, and it will die. And conversely, you can make a fly that expresses CTCF nowhere in the body except for the brain. Sorry, maybe I said that twice. Uh, and then, and then, it, and then it survives. So basically, expressing CTCF in the brain is is sufficient to make a fly to determine whether a fly will live or die. So that's why uh, we we performed high C uh, 
on dissected brains from these mutants. And we found that actually, just like in mammals, CTCF is required to form TAD boundaries in flies. The thing is that CTCF only binds to 10% of all TAD boundaries in flies. And so therefore, it was only required to form about 10%, right? So, so that, that showed us that, um, that, you know, that the mechanisms that are required to form TAD boundaries, they, they are conserved in flies, but the extent to which they contribute to forming all boundaries in the genome, this can vary widely, right? CTCF is required for whatever 90% of TAD boundaries in mammals and only 10% in flies. Which would also maybe hint so that, to the fact that there must yeah. be something else, right? Exactly, exactly. So there was clearly something else. And that's why in a follow-up study, we asked, well, what is this something else? And one obvious candidate that uh, had been described in, in previous studies by other labs is uh, a protein called CP190. And CP190 was reported to bind to all TAD boundaries in flies, pretty much. And uh, and this is it's an interesting protein. It was it was discovered originally by Victor Corsi's lab in a genetic screen. So an unbiased genetic screen looking for a factor that is critical for insulator function. Okay, so for the ability of an insulator to block the communication between an enhancer and a promoter. And so we thought it was a good candidate. So I, we again generated CP190 mutants. By the way, we, we always use a, a genetic strategy that I developed when I was in Jurg's lab, um, by which we can make animals that completely lack both maternal and zygotic protein which which is important it's basically a these are animals that have never seen cp190 at any point in their life right and and there we found that we we lost many more tad boundaries than in ctcf mutants we lost a quarter 25% instead of 10% so we lost ctcf dependent boundaries and in addition some other ones and actually uh, the results were pretty clear Okay, so the, the 75% of TED boundaries that persist in CP190 mutants, those are boundaries that are close to a transcribed promoter. So it means that in Drosophila, three quarters of TED boundaries are, are formed probably because of transcription. And Eileen's lab recently showed that indeed, if you mutate the promoter, you lose a TED boundary, right? So indeed suggests that somehow transcription or recruitment of the transcription machinery, whatever, is sufficient to create a TED boundary, a physical boundary. And um, a quarter, the remaining quarter of TED boundaries in flies, they are distal, they're far away from a transcribed promoter, and they are formed by structural proteins like CTCF and other DNA-binding proteins that exist in flies that are known to be insulator proteins. And what's funny is that the, all of these DNA binding proteins, they seem to recruit CP190 as a cofactor. And so whereas, whereas it's thought that in mammals, right, mammalian CTCF is sufficient to create a boundary, a TAD boundary, right, by acting as a, as a barrier to chromosomal loop extruding cohesion, in Drosophila, CTCF needs 
to recruit CP190 to form a robust foundry. So somehow splice CTCF and many other DNA binding uh, proteins that can form tight boundaries and splice, they all need to recruit this common cofactor. Okay, and so why why are these results interesting? I argue that basically it, 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 it showed that more mechanisms have evolved to form structural and regulatory boundaries than what was previously known from intensely studying this problem using mammalian cell culture, right? And so it's interesting to know that, that there are other mechanisms involved and that, for example, the concept that a protein like CTCF can associate with a partner protein that makes it make a more robust boundary, right, is also, uh, I, I think, interesting to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how does CP190 compare to CTCF structurally? Is it smaller, mm -hmm. bigger? Um, does it bind to DNA? Does it only bind to CTCF? <laughs> Do you know some, something about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So CP190, uh, the name 190 means that it's 190 kilodaltons. So it's quite a big protein. Um, okay, it has two zinc fingers. And so it has been, you know, debated about whether it can bind to DNA or not. I you know from our from our findings uh, and and from those of many other labs i think that uh, cp190 cannot bind to dna alone mm. it's really you know for example if we look at enriched motifs in dna under cp190 chip peaks the first motif we find is ctcf because many cp190 binding sites are ctcf dependent yeah ctcf is recruiting cp190 there then the next enriched motifs correspond to Another DNA binding protein in Drosophila that's present at Ted Bounders, suppressor of hairy wing. And then if you keep looking, then you find yet another DNA binding protein in Drosophila that's the Ted Bounders that's called B32. Anyway, so basically all of these motifs that you find enriched on their CP190 peaks, they correspond to the, to the sequences that are recognized by the DNA binding proteins that recruit CP190. Mm. Okay. So, so yeah, and then so one one domain protein domain that's present in CP190 that is a hundred percent critical for its function is a BTB domain, which uh, is um, so, so CP190 is a member of this family of transcription factors that's actually evolutionarily quite ancient. It's called the BTB zinc finger family of transcription factors. Mammals have about 40 members or so. And um, and they are they are involved in a, a broad range of cellular functions, but it's thought that the BTB is is an important homodimerization domain or heterodimerization domain. And so, how exactly CP190 functions is a, is a million dollar question. And this I cannot say apart. I, I cannot tell you anything mm, apart from saying okay. that the BTB yeah. is a hundred percent critical. And yeah. another question, um, how do insulators work? Do they just block like <sighs> the, the scanning of other proteins on a linear DNA sequence or can they also act in 3D um, and block yeah. the interaction by somehow, you know, blocking the 3D interaction or, or how is it mm. thought that they work? So that is the holy grail for us. I, I find it incredible that... Um, At this day and age, uh, we still don't, we like, we still cannot answer 
the most fundamental question of how do you prevent a promoter from interacting with an enhancer, right? Just by inserting a DNA element. So this has been something that I've been trying to, we've, you know, my, my, my lab has been trying to answer. It is very difficult to say. Uh, I can, so I think we have, we have relatively strong evidence that insulators, at least in Drosophila, they do not function simply as roadblocks, okay, that sit on DNA and that prevent an activating signal from scanning the DNA from an enhancer to a promoter. Um, so this is, uh, you know, p- part of the evidence that I'm not describing because it's a little bit complicated to describe it in words. It's our next paper that we're preparing and that we're going to upload on BioArchive in, in the coming months. <laughs> but um, but basically, we can reconstitute insulator function on a plasmid in a plasmid assay, and and I think that the fact that we can do that is 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 arguing against the the model mm-hmm. that insulators would, the, would simply act as a barrier. Yeah. Is the degree of insulator function dependent on the Linear distance from the insulator to the promoter? No, it's not. No. Not, well, at least not at the scales we've tested. Mm. At least not at the scales we've tested. Of course, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, studying insulation in a plasmid assay is artificial, obviously, right? I mean, what we see, but nevertheless, uh, the properties that we are able to dissect using our, our plasmid assay, you know, they, they make a lot of biological sense. Mm. And so, you know, on the one hand, you, you could you could argue that, okay, this is very artificial. We cannot conclude anything. But at the same time, none of the currently considered models, okay, of how insulators function can explain our findings. So in a way, even if this were completely artificial, I think it's still very intriguing. How are these things working, right? Um so yeah, that's the million dollar question. How <laughs> so do insulators function? Yeah. We've now but come so a little far, bit away from your yeah. from your work and dove into like the the more meta work, but there is one piece of uh, of science that that we've not discussed from your from the timeline from your timeline and this is mm-hmm. a paper that was just published a few weeks ago in August 2023 and this was published in Cell and um there you um yeah exactly talk about those distant TED pairs, uh, megabases apart, and how they can interact to form metadomains. Maybe we can um, yeah, close your <laughs> the science that has been done in your lab by, by talking about this, mm-hmm. and, and, and you just uh, talking right. about that for a bit. Sure. So this all started uh, because we had done, uh, we, we had looked at chromosome folding in brains of CTCF mutants in this first study. And, and actually, another phenomenon that we had observed but had not described in that paper because it was unrelated to TAD boundaries uh, is that we had seen very, very distant associations between distant TADs, okay, that were millions of base pairs apart. And so in, in this other study that just came out uh, and, and with which we teamed up with Alexander Yankovsky, who is a uh, computational biologist in Warsaw and the lab of Mike Levine in Princeton, who, who actually had better maps than we had. He had micro C maps, which is higher resolution than what we had high C. Basically we found that um, this was a new and a previously unrecognized, unrecognized level of genome folding. 
in which very specific pairs of TADs, in the most extreme cases, you know, on one end of the chromosome coming together with the other end of the chromosome, right? That they're able to, to come together. They come together because they are tethered. They are physically tethered by uh, punctual interactions between sites bound by transcription factors in one TAD and in the other. Okay. And so if we cut these tethers, for example, by making precise CRISPR-Cas9 deletions of, of one of the, what we call anchor sites, or by mutating the transcription factors that bind to these anchors, in both cases, this is sufficient to completely blow apart these TADs. Okay. So these metadomains, these associations between the distant TADs, they are tethered by these punctual interactions within them. Interestingly, these punctual interactions involve promoters of a subset of neural genes that are involved in axon guidance and signaling. For example, we have glutamate receptors, serotonin receptors, uh, and acetylcholine receptor genes looping. And um, we have genes that encode proteins involved in axon guidance that are looping. And, and so these gene promoters are looping to intergenic elements and uh, and by perturbing these associate these physical associations, we found several, so in total four examples of neural genes that when we disrupt the pairing, their transcription went down. Okay. And so these very distant intertad associations had been previously mm, noticed in mammalian uh, contact maps and mammalian cells. But it had been very difficult to assess whether they were functional or not, because in mammals, these associations between distant TADs are much more complex. You have many more TADs coming together, right? And so if you perturb one, it was very, it was very hard to see an effect on the gene in, in, in one of the distant partners, right? But in Drosophila, because these in distant TAD interactions are so specific, frequently we have two pairs of TADs coming together, right? we were able really to make precise perturbations and disrupt, okay, these associations. And in in many cases, this affected the transcription of a gene that was millions, more, more than, yeah, more than a million base pairs away. And so ultimately, these represent the longest range regulatory associations that have ever been described in any genome, which I find quite funny because typically Drosophila is considered to be a compact genome. And yet that's where we have found, you know, the largest range interactions so far. Maybe that's yeah. the reason for that, right? Because it's also compact, <laughs> it, it's closer together. Yeah, yeah, that could be, yeah. <laughs> so this uh, already uh, leads us to to the question, what are your plans for the next five years, right? What is, is this, that right. exactly what you want to do in the next five years or for the next grant? Right, 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 right. So so we started the lab working on, on TED Boundaries, it kind of, uh, you know, enlarged to, to studying inter-TAD associations. Now, you know, I, I can explain our research as ultimately trying to understand how the specific, the specific uh, communication between, enhan between promoters and regulatory elements is organized in three dimensions. So for our research on TAD boundaries, the holy grail that we were discussing before is to understand how Boundaries can prevent the communication between an enhancer and a promoter. Current models don't explain our findings. We're trying to come up with new models to explain this. 
For intertad associations, what I find the most, you know, one of the most remarkable features of what we found, in my opinion, is the specificity, right, with which these DNA elements that are millions of base pairs apart, how do they find each other, right? It's, it's incredible. Is it, is it encoded in the DNA or is it also that where these sequences are in three dimensions in the nucleus, whether that is another important layer to bring them together? So we have projects that are going to address these kind of questions. And finally, finally, you know, the question is, why does this specifically happen for neuronal genes and not for other, you know, genes of different cell types? What is it about neural genes that makes them special? And so this is another holy grail, very difficult question to address, but that I, but we have to think about. this is true for only Drosophila, right? No, in mammals as well. So if, uh, you know, in, in, in mammalian cells, the most striking long-range 3D contacts that have been described occur in mammalian neurons. Okay. And, uh, and actually they occur between uh, olfactory sensory receptors. So again, genes involved in, in signaling, right? And, uh, and so it seems like animal neurons, you know, we, we want to now explore how more How, how broader a concept this is, apart from just knowing that it exists in flies and in mammals. What about other species in the tree of life? How many of them show very long-range contacts uh, between neural gene promoters and very distant elements? Okay. Yeah. So for the last now 44 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Did we miss something important or would you like to add something? No. <laughs> I'm surprised we talked this long, but I think we really went into great depth. So no, I don't think we missed anything. So to finish, could you give us a brief summary of your most important finding? Oh dear. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I, it's hard for me to rank them. Um, you know, I, I would just say maybe more broadly, the, the fact of approaching questions that are intensely studied using one model and the fact that we use Drosophila, right? I think, uh, I think getting this kind of evolutionary perspective of what is possible, right? What different ways has life come up with to deal with similar challenges? I think, uh, I think it's an, an important uh, approach and an important insights to kind of broaden broaden the view of what is possible and what is necessary. Yeah. So thank you, Maria, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you very much, Stefan. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.